Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. Hi, my name is Olivia. Um, I'm going to be reading our passage for tonight. Um, it is Matthew 5, verses 38 through 40. You want to turn in your Bibles? Um, okay, here it is. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what rewards do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Olivia. Um, hey, all welcome to RUF. Uh, tonight is a special night. Uh, it is our very own RUF intern. Uh, Emma Pearson's birthday, and so we are going to sing happy birthday. So Emma, will you just raise your hand? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Here, um, I told y'all that I was going to wear this shirt again. Okay, if we uh, if we won this weekend, so we did. Let's go. Um, so big game this weekend, rooting on the Aggies. Uh, I also want to say that I'm happy that someone is making memes about me. Okay, because that, that means that means if, even if you don't have any riz, then at least you're listening and taking notes. Okay, so uh, all right, let me say this. So if you're joining us for the first time, at RUF, we're really glad you're here. Really, like if this is your first time walking through Office Chapel into RUF. Yeah, we're just really glad you're here. We say this all the time at RUF, that, that we really believe that the Bible teaches this, that you are never so good that you stand outside uh, the, the need of God's grace. That's true of all of us. While at the same time, you are never so bad that you stand outside the reach of God's grace. I really hope you experience that and taste that when you come to RUF, when you, when you interact with me and like everyone here, because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. So if you've been with us, what we normally do in, in RUF large group is we take a book of the Bible and we march through it. But this semester is a little bit different because every four years in the fall semester, we take a look at what the Bible has to say about relationships, about how we relate to God, about how we relate to one another, and about how we relate uh, to the world. And so our question for this semester has been this. What, what does God and his gospel have to do with all of my really complicated relationships in my life? And what scripture holds out for us is everything. And a foundational principle for our series has been this, right? 
then we need to understand that our vertical relationship with God will always shape our horizontal relationships with one another. Okay, so far, like, we've talked about relationships that that we want in our lives, right? We've talked about our relationship with God and relating to His will, right? We talked about relating to our parents and our family. We talked about what it looks like to relate to one another in friendship. We're going to talk about next week, we're going to talk about singleness, and then the weeks to come, we're going to talk about dating and marriage and the church, right? And for, for most of all of those relationships, right, we want those relationships. Like, we desire to cultivate those relationships. But tonight is a little bit different because an enemy is actually someone we don't want a part of our lives, right? Like, we want them out of our lives. And if you're a Christian tonight, there, there are two difficult realities that you must expect in order to live faithfully. And first, that's that you will have enemies. And second, you must love those enemies. Jesus taught both of those things very clearly. And so tonight, what Scripture holds out for us is that all relationships are transformed by the mercies of God and Jesus, including the way that we relate to our enemies. And so three questions tonight. So if you are a note-taker, here you go, okay? Three questions, okay? Who is our enemy? All right, how do we relate to our enemies? And why do we relate to our enemies, okay? So the who, the how, and the why, okay? So first, who is our enemy, okay? Let me take some time here to explain the context of our passage, okay? Because our passage tonight is delivered by Jesus in the famous section referred to as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, okay? It's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus chose a mountainside, probably on the, on the side near the Sea of Galilee, to deliver this sermon to large numbers of people, okay? So Jesus' audience is heavily a Jewish audience. Therefore, this audience would have been very familiar with the Old Testament law. However, there was a problem. Because many of the Pharisees and the religious leaders at this time, they had distorted the Old Testament law, they had relaxed it, and they had watered it down, okay? So in Matthew chapter 5, when you get to chapter 5 in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, in verses 17 through 48, where our, our passage falls into that, okay, there is a pattern of six antitheses where Jesus is contrasting his teaching with the distorted teaching of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, okay? So you'll hear this phrase six times in, the, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. You'll hear this phrase. You have heard it said... From the, from the Pharisees, but I, Jesus, say to you, okay? Let me just give you one example, okay? In, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard it said from the Pharisees that you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I, Jesus, say to you that, whoever, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, what the Pharisees were doing, they were saying this, look, if you never physically murder someone, you can check that box, you're good, you won't be liable for judgment. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You can murder someone by being angry at them in your heart. And that is enough to condemn you to eternal punishment. You see, you see the false teaching here? Right? The religious leaders are watering down and relaxing God's law to something that we can achieve and fully obey on our own. And Jesus is saying, no. You have all sinned, and none of you can perfectly obey God's law. Because it goes so much deeper than a surface-level action and a command for you to check off as completed. So that's why in chapter 5, verse 17, okay, 
Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it so that I could save you and then enable you to actually begin to obey God's law in your heart and your life. So Jesus, it's important to get this, okay? Jesus does not condemn the Old Testament law in this sermon, okay? He corrects it for those who have relaxed and distorted it. That's our context, okay? It's important for us to understand that because in our passage, in verses 38 and verse 43, we're dealing with the last two antitheses of of Jesus contrasting this teaching between him and the religious leaders, okay? So first, we need to answer this question, though, okay? Who were the enemies for Jesus' original audience in this passage? Right, the Jews during the first century were under the control of the Roman Empire. Okay, and just stop, y'all. Like, we know you don't think about the Roman Empire every week, okay? You're more concerned about what she thinks about you or whether she'll text you back. So stop playing, okay? Right, but before the Jews, right, they were thinking about the Roman Empire all the time, okay? Because, because these were their immediate enemies. Everywhere they looked, Romans were everywhere, right? So for the disciples and the first hearers, the most common enemy, it was the Roman Empire, the military force and system of government that was oppressive. But it wasn't limited to that, okay? Like, just like there's a spectrum for us today in what enemies look like, there was still a spectrum for the Jews, right? So, so while the Roman Empire was the most obvious enemy, in, enemies for Jesus' audience included race relations. We see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Different social groups, families, and national groups. So if that's true for Jesus' audience, what does that look like for us tonight? Right? Well, the vast majority of us here tonight, I would imagine, right, are, are American citizens. Okay, so, so there is no foreign occupying force, at least right now, praise God. But the principle of enemy is still true, right? See, an enemy, strictly speaking, if we're going to define it, okay, an enemy is someone that is antagonistic towards you, okay, someone who's hostile towards you and, and, and gets in the way of what you want or even your needs. Right, someone who is actually seeking to wound you, to hurt you. But at a base level, an enemy is someone who, through their actions or presence, is either blocking or threatening or taking what you want. And admittedly tonight, this is hard, right? Because there is a very large spectrum at what enemies look like in our life. I think we all intuitively kind of know that, right? Because on the one hand, for many of us, we have perceived enemies tonight. And this can look like... It can include things like religious enemies, right? Like people who think differently than you. Like even other Christians who disagree theologically. Like for some of you, it could be political enemies in your head, like Democrats and Republicans or conservatives and liberals where you say the other side is evil. Right? Or it could be vocational enemies, right? Professors that just feel unfair or like they're out to get you or bosses that one day will make your life miserable. It can even feel like different social groups, like like... Those are the independents, and this is the Greek crowd, right? Or, or, or people who are involved in organizations, and people who are not involved in organizations. Or even the category of frenemy, right? Like, the people in your life, and for, like, on the outside, y'all seem fine, and you're cordial, right? But man, like, y'all really can't stand each other. So there's that side of the spectrum, right? And then there's the other side of the spectrum, which is a lot more serious. Because some of you in here tonight have been really wounded, and there has been evil done to you. There have been enemies in your life who have abused you emotionally, verbally, 
physically growing up or in an unhealthy relationship. Like, some of you have been betrayed on an ungodly level. And, and you, you have had your, your reputation ruined by someone. Okay, so, so relating to an enemy like an abuser is going to look different than loving a perceived enemy, okay? Like the guy at RUF that all the girls like and you just, he drives you crazy, right? Or, or the girl that is like running for the same position as you, okay? The way that you relate to each of those enemies on the spectrum, it's going to look different. And which we'll talk about that in a second, okay? But the question I, who is your enemy, okay? Before we move on, on to our next point. This is the question I think that you could ask yourself in identifying an enemy in my life. This is the question. Right? Who comes to mind on this campus or in my life that I think is the least deserving of my love? Right? Who is it that bothers me? Who is it that annoys me? Like, who is it that I just can't stand being around or, or stands in the way of the things that I want? Those are kind of the, the questions that will begin to help you see, like, oh, like, this person may be an enemy in my life. Because Jesus is saying that his grace, his love for his people, transforms even the way that you relate to enemies. Whether that is someone you just don't like or whether that's an enemy that has, has inflicted really lasting wounds and pain. So identifying our enemies is important for knowing how we actually begin to relate to our enemies, okay? That's the first step. And this leads us to our next point, okay? How do we relate to our enemies? Uh, I might have to duck and cover after this, but uh, our beloved Taylor Swift, right? So she summarizes it well when she sings, okay? Now go stand in the corner and think about what you did. Ha, time for a little revenge. She's not a saint, and she's not what you think. She's an actress. Whoa. She's better known for the things that she does on the mattress. Whoa. Soon she's going to find stealing other people's toys on the playground won't make you many friends. She should keep in mind. She should keep in mind. <laughs> there is nothing I do better than revenge. Ha. I'm not going to sing that. Okay. I, yeah. I, I listen to people like, let's do it on the way up here. Okay. But, like... Is that not becoming true of Taylor Swift, right? Like, I'm sorry, Swifties. Like, is not what she is kind of become, that is that not what she's kind of becoming known for, right? It's almost a joke now that, that if you cross Taylor Swift, then you're gonna be raked through the coals, right? There will be a song written about you, and all your wrongdoings will be heard by the world. And like it or not, that is the method of her personal vengeance. Like, cross her and get ready to suffer the consequences. Prayers up, Travis Kelsey, okay? Like, like, okay, and not just to be on the Swift, okay? Like, we, this, this is what I'm getting at, okay? Because in a way, like, I really do think that Taylor's songs catch the very human emotion that all of us feel, right? That's why I think she's so popular. That the emotions of bitterness and retaliation, that when we're insulted or offended, when, when we've been wronged, when we feel belittled by our enemies, our character is the malign, Right when we've been victims of petty slights or very deep injustices, when we have enemies who oppose us or hurt us, the natural human response is to respond, you hurt me, so I hurt you. Tit for tat, right? You hit me, I'll hit you back. I am going to give as good as I get. And in our passage, in these two final antitheses, right, Jesus gives us what may be the most countercultural way of any of these commands in chapter 5. 
And he says two things. There are two things in relating to our enemies. First, do not retaliate when wronged. And second, love your enemies. So first, do not retaliate when wronged. Because in verse 38, the religious leaders, they were misinterpreting the law, okay? Hold on with me for a second, okay? What Jesus quotes is the Old Testament, right? He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? This law comes up a lot throughout the Old Testament, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But Jesus is not saying the Old Testament got it wrong. Rather, he's saying the Pharisees and the religious leaders at that time, their appropriation of the command was wrong. What do I mean by that, okay? Although it sounds harsh to us, right? Like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Like, ooh, yikes, that's, that's really violent. Right? Back in the day, th- this was a law that was actually meant for protection. Okay, because on the one hand, it was actually meant to protect the perpetrator. Because in those days, it was not an eye for an eye. It was a head for a tooth. Right? Because this law, it was actually meant to establish some measure of, like, reciprocity. That the punishment, it must fit the crime to actually protect the perpetrator from unjust, excessive punishment. Okay? So that if you steal an apple, you don't get your head chopped off. Right? But it was also meant to protect the community from vigilante justice, from people actually taking matters into their own hands. It was meant to be a legal code for those in governing authority that this is how you exact and balance justice for those who committed crimes. Okay? Hang with me. All right? But the problem was, okay, that many of the Jews and the Pharisees during this time, they were misusing this law for their own personal excuse and for their own personal vendetta. Because this is what the Jews were thinking. Okay, this law exists, so they are justifying to tell themselves, okay, since this law exists, that means that I can seek revenge. I can seek retaliation. But Jesus is saying, no, no, like, this eye-for-eye business was meant actually to avoid personal vengeance. That's why it existed. So Jesus, in verse 39, he gives the, the proper interpretation, okay? He says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Right, we'll talk about this in a second, but Jesus does not mean never use the legal system or self-defense in criminal act when, when wrong is being done to you. Jesus is not overturning the law or the legitimacy sorry, legitimacy of the government. He is confronting a deeper heart issue. Okay, and that is the bitterness, the stewing anger, the insatiable appetite for revenge that says, if you cross me, then you're going to regret it. That's what he's addressing. And I think all of us are familiar with that, right? Like, if you try and embarrass me on a group text, ooh, like, you're going to regret that. I'm coming with the pithiest response that you've ever seen, right? Like, like if you publicly humiliate me, then, then I'm keeping receipts. Like, you're going to pay. Right? You will rue the day if you ever break up with me, Right? Because in, the, in verses 39 through 42, Jesus uses four illustrations to this command. Slapping, suing, forcing, and begging. In verse 39, he uses slapping. Jesus says, when someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. And in an honor and shame culture, back in the first century Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, they would slap each other. Like, really? And Jesus says, turn the other cheek. When someone slaps you with a snarky text over a group text, you learn to let it go. A girl turns you down from a date that feels like a slap in the face, you respect her and you don't make her pay for it. 
right? He, he also uses verse 40, suing, right? In the first century, Jews who, whose property was damaged, they would sue someone for everything that they had, ring them of all their possessions. And Jesus said, hey, actually give them your cloak also. If someone skips you, skips you in line in the ticket pool, just clock them in the fit. No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> like, offer them chairs, snacks that you brought with you. In verse 41, Jesus talks about forcing, right? Going the extra mile. It was common for a Roman soldier back in the day because they were occupied by the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers could make Jewish citizens help them transport artillery and supplies and animals from one mile checkpoint to the next. And that was completely legal. And Jesus says, hey, if a, if a hated Roman soldier tells you to go one mile, go with him too. And when you were asked by an Alabama fan this weekend for directions, you stop and you help them. And you take them where they need to go. And you ask them about their lives. In verse 42, he brings up begging, right? In the first century, the, the ones begging would have been the poor or the disabled or maybe even your own family members, right? Jesus says, freely give. Give generously. If your roommate forgets to do the dishes again, don't pick them up and go throw them on his bed, okay? I haven't. I know somebody did that. So, right, but do the dishes quietly and offer to do their laundry also. Like, this is the kind of actual radical reversal of love that Jesus is illustrating in the way that we treat our enemies. Where we all hear this, okay, and we think, like, can this be right? Right, like, I mean, this just feels unrealistic. Like, it feels too far-fetched. Because there's two mistakes I need to address when, when we read these verses about retaliation, okay? Two mistakes. Here's the first mistake, right? The first mistake that we make is to fail to hear Jesus' words in the context of the rest of Scripture, okay? Right, if we just had this passage tonight without the rest of the context of Scripture, then you would basically, basically just have anarchy, Okay? Like, it doesn't matter if I was subject to abuse or injustice, or I just have to deal with it and turn the other cheek. But we have to take Jesus in the context of the rest of Scripture. He doesn't intend his disciples to be doormats. We know from Romans 13 that God instituted governing authorities to, check, to be a check on lawlessness, okay? Even as imperfect as that may be sometimes, to actually exact justice and punishment for wrongdoing, Okay? But also, God did not just give us human justice. But even more importantly, in Romans 12, verse 19, Paul says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I don't know your reaction to that, right? Like, at first glance, like, that, that seems really off, doesn't it? Like, like, God's justice just doesn't seem to square with God's love. But Scripture actually says that it does. And this is really important. Let me give you one biblical example, okay? If you read First and Second Samuel back in the Old Testament, okay, you, you will meet this guy named David, okay? And David is anointed the king of Israel while king, while king Saul is actually still on the throne. And if you read about the intersection of their lives in First and Second Samuel, here's what you'll find. Is that Saul is literally trying to kill David his entire life. Right? He's always hunting him down. He's trying to put him down with spears. He has a lot of opportunities to try and kill him. Right? And Saul ends up being an evil king. And David's actions towards Saul are incredible. Because David has multiple chances to kill Saul. One time Saul is actually like using the bathroom in a cave where David and his army, and his army are hiding out. 
But David refuses to lay a finger on Saul. He treats him with kindness and respect. And like you think to yourself when you when you read something like that, you're like, man, David must have like this kind of like superhuman power. That sounds awful, right? It's actually wrong. Because what you begin to see is when you begin to read the Psalms, which are authored by David, a lot of them are, not all of them, but a lot of them are. What you begin to see is that David is actually crying out for God's justice and his wrath. Saying, God, will you please punish the wicked? God, will you make things right? Will you bring justice? And because he is praying his anger, he is praying it because he knows that God is a a God of loving justice. He trusts God that he sees all and knows all. And this is what enables David to continually, sacrificially love his enemy. Um, does anyone want a Quentin Tarantino fan in here? I don't know. Okay, Quentin Tarantino, uh, he's, uh, he's a movie director. He's directed movies like Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Django Unchained. Okay, uh, I'm not like promoting this. Okay, but like th- these, are, these are three movies actually that are, that are particular uh, that he directed that are actually rewritten historical fiction with alternate endings. Okay? They're very controversial, or some of them are, but, but they're popular films. But one thing um, he is known for is actually his violence and his overcorrected attempt at justice. And it's really fascinating. Because if you've seen his movies, you understand what I'm talking about. Because, because normally, at the end of every movie that he directs, there is some kind of dramatic, climactic, over-the-top violent scene where the antagonist usually gets what Tarantino thinks that they deserve for all their wrongdoing. And it's like a gore fest, okay? And I think the reason why Tarantino is, is so violent in the alternate ending of these historical fiction films is not because he's achieved justice. It's actually because he's achieved a picture of vengeance. You see, without believing in the justice of God, you, you will never truly fight for justice. You will always take vengeance into your own hands. And it will always continue to spiral towards violence and gore and hatred. And that's what Tarantino does in his films. But when you trust the wrath of God and, the just, and that justice belongs to him, here is what you are admitting. This is important, okay? You are admitting in humility that you don't have the wisdom or power to know exactly what this person deserves. But God does. Christian, take comfort in 2 Timothy 2.19. The Lord who knows, the Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows the injustice that you've experienced in your life when no one else does. He knows the hurt. He knows the pain. And there will be a day when all wrongs will be made right. That day is coming. And we can take great comfort in the fact that for now, we're called to obey Jesus and overcome evil with good. John Stott says this, that Jesus' purpose in this passage was not to forbid revenge, I mean, was to forbid revenge, not to discourage justice and honesty. Jesus was not prohibiting the administration of justice but rather forbidding us to take the law into our own hands. So that's the first mistake that we make. I promise it's the longest one, okay? Right? We don't take what Jesus says in the broader context of Scripture, that God is a God of justice. 
and it's coming. Right? The second danger is that we also so guard and we provide so many nuances that we don't let this command from Jesus hit us with the radical force that it should. Right? This is a very hard word from Jesus that he's given us to us. Seriously, when you think about this. <laughs> and because all four of these illustrations, right, slapping and suing and forcing and begging, in each of these you have someone who wants to harm you and harass you and embarrass you and hurt you. And Jesus says to Christians, we, we don't do that in return. This is actually what sets you apart from the world. You see, we all of us here tonight, okay, we all hit back with the things that we think where our power lies, right? Like when you were young, you, it's usually like physical with your siblings, right? It's whether a punch, a kick, or a bite, right? But as you get older, you begin to realize that your words have power, right? For Taylor Swift, it was her songs and her platform. For some of you, it may be your, maybe your position of leadership in, in your org. Or for some, it's your shame that has power to hurt others. Or for some of you, it's your silence that has power to hurt others. For some of you, that's your control that has power to hurt others. And it, it begs the question tonight. Like, are we always trying to get even with others or one of them? Like, are you trying to destroy your ex's reputation? Like, are you ever so slightly gossiping about that girl or guy that you're really jealous of to make yourself look better? Like, are we a community that uses our power to hurt? Are we a vengeful community? Or are we a community that goes the extra mile for our enemies? Because this carries into our last point here, okay? Why we relate to our enemies. Jesus tells us in our passage that we're, we're not only supposed to refrain from revenge and retaliation with our enemy, but in verse 40, 44, we're actually called to love our enemy. And move towards them. Right? It's not just a negative command that Jesus gives us here tonight. It's actually a positive command. Right? Jesus says, don't take revenge, but instead take the next step to move toward your enemy in love. And it's important, right? The Greek word for love is agape. Okay? Right? What that means is it's a love that gives itself for the good of the recipient. Right? It means that the it means it's love that springs from the nature of the donor rather from the real worthiness of the recipient. Let me say that again. Agape means that it is a love that springs from the nature of the donor rather from, than from the real worthiness of the recipient. You see, even if our enemy is not worthy of love, God has enabled us by His Holy Spirit so that we can love them we can desire and work for their highest good. We can regard them as those whom Christ came and died and who are therefore intensely valuable to Him. Why? Jesus gives us four reasons in verses 45 through 48. And the first is this. Is that the reason why you can love your enemies is because you are sons of your Father who is in heaven. Before you, before you were His children, what were you? Tonight, Christian, you were His enemy. Our Father poured out His agape onto you. A love that came from the nature of Himself, rather than your own unworthiness. God poured out His love onto His enemies so that He could, 
so that we could become his children. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have a father who is most famous for loving his enemies. And the question tonight is, do you look like your father? Right, people sometimes say this about my son, like, oh, Henry looks so much like you. And I go, oh, man, poor guy. I, th- I thought he was really handsome. Right? But, like, and then I tell people they looks like his mother. Um, like, do people think that Aggie RUF is a place that looks like our Heavenly Father? A father who reconciled his enemies to himself. A father who loved his enemies. Is there anything distinct about us? That's the first reason. And the second reason is this. Is that your father is gracious to everyone. He does so, or he does good to the people who, who don't deserve it. Right? We sometimes say, like, man, if I show grace to my enemy or, or my ex or my frenemy, like, they're going to think that the sins that they committed against me, that they just really don't matter. A Christian, if, if God showers his grace on both the righteous and the unrighteous, then we are also called to shower grace on those in our lives who don't deserve it. And the third reason is this, that if, if payback is the way that the world works, which it does, then how do we look different? Right? If you're only nice to people and love people in RUF, but like you're not, like you don't engage with your classmates who may hate you because you're a Christian, or like I don't know. Your professors who hate Christianity and they're clear about that? Like, what, what about orgs on this campus who, who clearly hate RUF because you're a Christian? Like, if we want to determine, if we are growing in godliness, Aggie RUF, we should ask this question, and this begins with your campus minister. How am I doing in loving those who deserve my love the least? How are we doing in loving those who deserve our love the least? As Jesus ends this and he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It doesn't mean be perfect, doesn't mean necessarily mean sinlessness, right? Here, it can be translated as matured. Matthew used that word a lot throughout his gospel. But in other words, Jesus is saying the point here is that you are to reflect your father. Um I recently, recently heard a story from World War, sort of from World War II uh, that happened on December 20th, 1943. Uh, an American B-17 bomber was, was a part of a big bombing mission in Germany. And when they, when they came under heavy fire from the Germans on the ground into the air, this one B-17 piloted by Charlie Brown, no, not kidding, that's his name, uh, it just got torn apart, right? And there, there were several, several of the crew members that, that died. There was only one engine working. It was barely able to stay up in the air. And it was like limping out of the fight, trying to get home. But a German fighter, piloted by Franz Stigler, saw it, and he bore down on it. And he got right behind it, and as he was about to pull the trigger and put this plane to its death, which would have been easy, he looked at it, and he saw how pathetic it was. <laughs> he could actually see dead soldiers in the plane hanging off. And it was just like barely being able to like stay up in the air. And it actually began to move him. 
So he actually pulled beside the plane and he motioned to the pilot somehow that he was going to escort them out of Germany and get them safely home. And somehow they made it back to England because this guy chose to love his enemy. And he risked probably his own life that if the government found out, Nazi government found out about this, then, then he would have been executed. You see, we aren't called to just merely tolerate our enemies. We aren't called to tolerate that annoying person in your life that you just rather avoid. We aren't called to tolerate that guy that we're really jealous of. You aren't called to tolerate that friend who betrayed you and won't even look your direction anymore. We're called to love them, to be patient with them, to not retaliate against them, to find ways to serve them if possible, and to uplift them. And what Jesus says is the most powerful, is to pray for them. If I leave you with anything tonight, it's this. That if you want to be humbled, if you want to humble yourself and actually put this into practice, then the next time that you interact with your, your enemy, take three to four minutes to stop and pray for them. You will be humbled, you will be surprised, and it will transform the way that you think about them and seek to love them. There is no greater opportunity tonight to reflect our Heavenly Father, who is famous for loving His enemies, than to pray for those who persecute us. It will help you and me and all of us in Aggie RUF tonight to obey and to worship and to remember that while we were still enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that amazing truth that the love of enemies began with you, that that's what you're known for. You put that your heart on display, your justice and your mercy, in order to save sinners like me and all of us in this room tonight through the bloody sacrifice of your son Jesus. You did not retaliate when you had full right to do so. You could have wiped us from the face of the earth but by your grace, your amazing grace. You sent your son to live a perfect life, to fulfill the law, to die the death that we could never die, and to be raised again so that we are now called not your enemies, but your sons and daughters. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help Aggie RUF to be a place on this campus that looks different from this world, that loves its enemies? And the only way we can do that is if we are anchored and reminded again and again and again of the gospel of what you have done for us in your son Jesus. Would you help us do that? We trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.